Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 210 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from Ipswich in Suffolk. A shocking story of three murders and a subculture where violence was acceptable and potentially encouraged. Before we start, a big thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, many of whom are watching me record this live as we do every month. A special thank you to the new members of this exclusive club. That's Mr. Len, Pam Green, Ian Slater and Joanne Offord. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. And happy birthday to new Patreon supporter Amy Heath. I hope you had a good one, Amy. And of course, you kept it classy. A reminder that CrimeCon rocks up in London in June next year. This is the true crime event of the year, with a guarantee that tickets will be fully refunded if you can't go ahead. You can get early bird discounted tickets now, with an extra saving if you use the code UKTC when booking. I'll be there for the weekend, so this is your chance over a beer to explain why I'm wrong, and the Kings of Leon and Elbow are great bands. <laughs> Yeah, just search CrimeCon UK to find the website. That's for those of you that have never used the internet before. (laughs) I should laugh at my own joke, should I? Okay, let's set some context by playing our world-famous and exclusive Guest of the Month and Year game. Number one in the UK and US charts was I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. You might know it. In Australia, it was the essential Michael Jackson, which was in the top spot for seven weeks. In the news this month, the legend that is Usain Bolt of Jamaica won the 100 metres in a world record 9.58 seconds at the World Athletics Championships in Berlin. He also won the 200 metres. Gravely ill great train robber Ronnie Biggs was granted release from prison on compassionate grounds. In cricket, the Ashes series concluded with England beating Australia 2-1, and the Scottish Justice Secretary, Kenny McCaskill, controversially granted release to the convicted Lockerbie Bomber on compassionate grounds, stating that this was because he was in the final stages of terminal prostate cancer. It was, of course, August 2009. It was quite a month for me, as I didn't know that in the very next month, One incident would mean that my life was going to fundamentally change forever. Just think, without that one thing happening, you'd never have heard of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. Look, you're not supposed to cheer, okay? Today's story comes from Ipswich, a town on the east coast of England around 65 miles northeast of London and home to Patreon supporters Wilfred and Hayes. It's a place I've spent a lot of time either working or for nights out after sailing at nearby Felixstowe. Amongst those of us with an interest in true crime, it is probably best known for the period between the 30th of October and the 10th of December 2006, during which time the bodies of five murdered women all were discovered at different locations near Ipswich, 
Steve Wright was of course later found guilty of these crimes. Even before the events we discussed today, street drinking was a problem in Ipswich. I'm no expert on this, but it seems the main focus for the local council was on two groups. Firstly, the underage drinkers, and secondly, a much older crowd, many of whom were either homeless or had long-term problems with alcohol and also often suffered with their mental health. It's with this second group at the edge of our society. Those who, when they're seen in your local town or city, many will cross the road to avoid, that our story focuses on today. On Sunday the 9th of August 2009, just a normal summer Sunday, police broke into a flat in Victoria Road in Ipswich after concerned neighbours had reported hundreds of flies at the window. Police feared for what they would find inside and the smell that greeted them meant that when they went into the bedroom, they weren't surprised to find the body of 41-year-old Rosalind Hunt who'd been dead for a number of days. Maybe it was a legacy of the Steve Wright murders, but the death of Rosalind Hunt had a real effect on the town. But it was to get worse when just a day later, on Monday the 10th of August, 43-year-old Desmond Thorpe was found dead at a flat in Limerick Close, about two miles away from Victoria Street. Both were known alcoholics and were well-known members of the Ipswich Street Drinking Fraternity and the police investigation quickly brought detectives to the leader of this group, 41-year-old Paul Clark, who was arrested and brought in for questioning. He was an alcoholic with a track record of violence, but in a much better physical condition than some of the group he spent most of his time with, many of whom were barely functioning. It seemed he'd recently been living with Desmond Thorpe's 15-year-old daughter, Lorraine, and the two were close. Detectives wanted to know if either of them had any information on what had happened to Rosalind or Lorraine's dad Desmond, so Lorraine Thorpe was also brought in for questioning. Although still in her mid-teens, Lorraine Thorpe had already seen things in her life that should never be seen, and she was never given the opportunity to have a happy, carefree childhood. At the age of just 12 after her parents separated, Lorraine first lived with her mum but then became the main carer for her dad, Desmond. In her 15 years, she'd seen his relationship with alcohol continue to deteriorate, and by 2009, he was in a, really, he was in a real state, even barely able to walk unaided, and at just 43. Those of you who have seen people losing their battle with the bottle would appreciate just how hard this is to witness as an adult, and so for Lorraine, it must have had a real impact. Lorraine lived with her dad in a series of pretty ropey flats as they tried to avoid social workers. They even lived in a tent at one time when there was nowhere else for them to go. And as Desmond, or Des as he was known, hung out with the street drinkers in Ipswich, Lorraine also spent a lot of the time with them and was exposed to that very unique culture which can be one of appalling violence. Sure, Lorraine had been diagnosed with ADHD, but make no mistake that she was a bright and potentially talented girl who, if she'd been given a different opportunity, could have achieved academically. But Lorraine skipped school as she didn't want to be tracked down by the authorities, and for the same reason, she never took her medication for ADHD. Lorraine's emotional development was chaotic, but what was clear is that she adored her dad and he loved her too. After all, 
Dennis wasn't a bad person. He was just an alcoholic. One person who knew him said, Des was a chronic alcoholic. I met him on a handful of occasions. I used to give him a cigarette or have a chat with him. He was a likeable enough guy. I think he was more harmful to himself than anyone else. In terms of street drinking hierarchy, he was near the bottom. He was very vulnerable. And he was very apt at being bullied by others on the streets. As Lorraine cared for him as his alcoholism got worse, Lorraine had to do the most intimate things for him. Those things that no child should be asked to do for their parents at that age. And her social life was pretty much spent with the street drinking crowd, who were predominantly a group of middle-aged alcoholics, to whom violence had become the norm, and where being manipulative was often a key part of the strategy to get hold of alcohol, and also to survive in this often hostile environment. In effect, Lorraine had been given no guidance on what in society is considered right and wrong. For example, she found the constant violence in the street drinking community both funny and entertaining. Detectives immediately suspected that the leader of the street drinkers, Paul Clark, played a key role in the murders. But they struggled to believe that Lorraine had been involved directly, unless there had been large degrees of coercion from Clark and others. But they were wrong. Lorraine was very forthcoming and almost boastful when she told them that she played a major part in killing her dad, along with Paul Clark, saying, You'll find my footprint on my dad. A father of four, Des's body was discovered at his house on the city, whilst recovered outside the house was a blood-splattered cushion. There were marks on Des's lips, which led experts to believe that the cushion had been used to smother him to death but it certainly hadn't been a peaceful end, and Des had been badly beaten up and stamped on, seemingly by his own daughter, with a trainer print visible on his forehead. And detectives quickly realised that Lorraine had been involved in both murders, and had even laughed and joked with friends about the brutal murder of Rosalind Hunt. Following Des's murder, the lead detective said the following, it was known that Desmond was going to approach the authorities or tell the authorities as to what happened to Rosalind. We believe that that was the main motivation why they ultimately couldn't allow Des Thorpe to make that approach and would have led to his death by suffocation. So they'd killed Des to stop him informing on them for the murder of Rosalind Hunt. And what actually happened to Rosalind was enough to shock even the most experienced detectives. Following her divorce from her husband John, mum of two, Rosalind, or Rosie, as she was known to friends, began to go downhill. When we pick up the story in 2009, Rosalind was 41 and in a pretty bad place. She struggled to find work and without the structure and routine that that gave her, she began to drink more and more. She became involved with the street drinking community in Ipswich and had a council flat there where the street drinkers would often congregate. But Rosalind was a friendly and generous woman, and this kind nature was often exploited by other members of the street drinking community. But due to Rosalind's generous nature, the group would often drink in her house without her permission, and she would not be able to do anything to stop them. Rosalind had recently been in a relationship with Paul Clark, who was the clear leader of the group, 
But in August 2009, they fell out when Paul accused Rosalind of kicking his dog in an instant when it attacked a child. But after the argument with Paul Clark, Rosalind was scared as to what he might do. She knew he had a violent history and she had seen him lose his temper on many occasions. She certainly wouldn't go to his flat. But later that day, when 15-year-old Lorraine Thor passed her to join her at the flat, she accepted. After all, she knew Lorraine and her dad Dares, and Lorraine's innocent smile and demeanour made her think that nothing bad could happen. How wrong she was. At the flat was Paul Clark and Lorraine and other members of the group, including John Grimwood and Dares Thorpe. When she was inside the flat, what happened next was the stuff of nightmares. I'll spare you the worst of the details, but she was in effect tortured by Paul Clark and Lorraine Thorpe for a number of days. Some of the acts carried out are beyond comprehension, but they included grating her skin of a cheese grater before rubbing salt into the wounds to inflict maximum pain. They tried to force Roslyn into a suitcase, attacked her with a dog chain and an electric fan without the covering, and also set light to her hair of a lighter. She was punched and she was stamped on in an orgy of violence, with nine of her ribs being broken in the process. I think it's hard to think how she must have felt during this time as she'd have been fully aware of what was happening, but no doubt unclear if they were ever going to let her go. It must have been so utterly terrifying for her. And then after days of this abuse under the cover of darkness, Rosalind was taken back to what should have been the safety of her own home, but that was not the case and the torture continued there. With terrible injuries and unable to alert anyone, Rosalind died in agony, on the bed in her own home, where she was found four days later. The pathologist gave a formal cause of death as blunt trauma. She had clearly suffered significant violence and physical abuse. People who knew her were shocked, with one saying, it doesn't matter who you are, what circles you move in, When you hear of someone being murdered, it's such a shock. And especially when it's someone like Rosie. A really nice person who wouldn't harm anyone, wouldn't argue with anyone. Someone that's not confrontational. Detectives were unsurprised that Paul Clark denied any part in the two murders. But they were very surprised that Lorraine admitted freely to both. Consultant forensic psychologist Dr Kerry Nixon also found this unusual, commenting as follows. In my experience, I've never seen this level of violence, these types of injuries enacted by a 15-year-old girl. Usually, in cases like this, they will partake in some violence, but to be actively involved in such torturous activity is incredibly rare. At their trial, Paul Clark, Lorraine Thorpe, and another member of the street drinking community, 28-year-old John Grimwood, denied murder. Giving evidence, Paul Clark admitted kicking Rosalind twice on the day she died, but he said that he did not think that was the cause of her death and he wasn't responsible for her murder. He told how he'd fallen asleep in her lounge before being wakened by Lorraine, who told him that Rosalind was dead. And as for Des Thorpe, he told the court how he also was not responsible for this killing. He outlined that he was friends with Des and he'd nothing at all to do with his death. Both Lorraine Thorpe and John Grimwood chose not to give evidence during the trial. The jury found Paul Clark and Lorraine Thorpe guilty of two counts of murder, 
Clark was sentenced to life with a minimum of 27 years, and Thorpe was given life with a minimum of 14 years, meaning she could be released in 2024 before she's 30. With this sentence, Lorraine Thorpe became Britain's youngest convicted female double murderer. Mary Bell, who was 11 when she strangled two boys aged 3 and 4 in Newcastle in 1968, remains the youngest female killer after being found guilty of manslaughter. The third person standing trial, John Grimwood, was found not guilty and he left the court a free man. The judge described Clark as the instigator of Rosalind's murder, although saying that Thorpe played a full part. The judge continued that she'd been influenced by Clark, who was the dominant member of the group of heavy drinkers, and she'd been keen to impress him. He told how Lorraine's story is an appalling one, and her case is rightly described as wholly exceptional. She spent all her time with middle-aged alcoholics, to whom violence was the norm, he said, as they fought each other and stole to get the drink which they craved. He said that social services were unable to keep track of Lorraine. When she was placed in a school, she escaped and went back to her father. But he emphasised again that all the evidence was that they loved each other very much. The trial was notable for the behaviour of Thorpe during proceedings. She showed no remorse and she giggled uncontrollably during the trial. Understandably, Rosalind's brother Adrian was disgusted by her behaviour, saying, The first time I went to court, all I remember is Lorraine Thorpe laughing and giggling to Paul Clark as if it was all a big, big joke. No one stopped her. I felt disgusted. I felt like I wanted to jump over and just rip her head off. We heard earlier from Dr Kerry Nixon. who commented further that Thorpe's crimes may not have happened without Clark, she said. I start to feel complete empathy for the girl that was let down by society and professionals. No girl should be living with her alcoholic father at the age of 12. She was lost. She went from her mother to foster care and then she ran away to be with her dad and eventually social services lost her and she was living on the streets drinking with alcoholic men. That shouldn't happen in our society. I believe she was groomed by Paul Clark and living a life that no teenager should be living. But then we look at the level of violence she enacted on Rosalind Hunt It was so extreme and so vicious, and that's where it's difficult to look at the vulnerable girl. But would those murders have taken place if she wasn't part of that drinking community? And if she hadn't met Paul Clark? No, I don't believe they would have done. I should mention that two police officers were given written warnings for their actions around the death of Rosalind Hunt. The two had gone to her flat after reports of screaming in the property, but after knocking on the door and briefly speaking to a man at the scene, they left. An inquiry by the IPCC found they should have gained entry to Rosalind's home by force if necessary. The officers were criticised for failing to follow up inquiries and were told they should have done more to ensure the welfare of Rosalind Hunt. The IPCC report said it was not possible to determine whether Rosalind was still alive at the time the officers attended the scene. On the 25th of April 2018, just before 6.30am, Paul Clark was found unresponsive in his cell at Her Majesty's Prison Whitemore with a ligature tied around his neck. Paramedics were called, but he died at the scene. 
And what of John Grimwood, who stood trial with Thorpe and Clark, being found not guilty? One detective believed firmly he should have been found guilty, saying he was certainly present in and around the two addresses, and at varying times over the days running up to when we believe Rosalind was killed, and some of the witnesses certainly gave evidence of him committing physical assaults against Rosalind at that time. But he was found innocent by the jury, and so returned to Ipswich a free man. After the trial, John soon drifted back into street drinking in Ipswich. He had a reputation for drink, drugs and violence, and his girlfriend, Alison Studd, who had also struggled with addiction to drugs and alcohol, was often seen with a split lip or bruising to her face after being attacked by her increasingly violent boyfriend. But despite his violence towards her, she didn't leave him. Then in January 2001, Alison was chatting to her friend Carrie Talbot close to the Odeon Cinema in Ipswich. Carrie didn't realise that John was angry with her as he blamed her for a friend of hers breaking his arm. John went up to Carrie and asked her for a quiet word around the corner and the two walked off together. But moments later, John was no longer after a quick chat, but he was attacking Carrie, punching her in the back. Carrie asked him why he was doing this, and his response was to punch her some more. But then a friend of Carrie's intervened. And what happened next, in Carrie's own words? A friend of mine who was sat up at the Odeon said, Carrie, run, he's not punching you, he's stabbing you. Carrie continued, I had so much running through my head, I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why he had done it. I couldn't make sense of what had happened. I know I had to get away. I ran past a few shops. I don't know why, but Argos just seemed the obvious shop to go to. So that's where I came to. Told them that I thought I'd been stabbed. I was like, can you call me an ambulance? I think I've been stabbed. And at the time, I didn't realise how bad it was. Carrie had been stabbed four times and was covered in blood and taken straight to intensive care, where she luckily survived the attack. But meanwhile, John Grimwood's partner lay dead at their home. After attacking Carrie, he'd gone home and argued with Alison over tobacco. he then crawled along the floor, and using the same knife which he'd used to attack Carrie, he slashed her, catching her under the knee where he hit a main artery. Alison was unconscious when an ambulance crew got to the house shortly after 7pm and she tragically died from her injuries. Alison's mum told how her daughter's life had been blighted by alcohol for when she was a young woman through to her violent death at just 36. This meant she led the same chaotic lifestyle we have heard about today among the street drinkers. She was a mother of two children, a boy and a girl, in their mid-teens when she was killed. And although life was tough for Alison, and she was only in intermittent contact with her family, they all loved her. Her mum, Carol, said after her death, Alison was a lovely girl who lost her way. I always hoped that Alison would one day return to the family. Now any glimmer of hope I had has been cruelly taken away, and I feel so terribly aggrieved by this. Alison's children had already suffered enough, but no matter how fragile their relationship with her may have been, it's tragic that they've now lost their mum. Alison had addictions, but she was not a bad person, and she had a loving heart. 
Grimwood, known as Short Man, admitted both attacks and was jailed for at least 20 years. Witnesses said he'd been stoned and drugged out of his head when he carried out the two assaults. His QC described the chaotic life he led, saying that Grimwood lived in a subculture of alcohol and drug abuse, adding that his record shows he was almost habitually armed with a knife when in public. The judge said, You have a history of violently abusing your partners, a history of carrying weapons, and a history of drinking to excess. You are 29 years old, and there are now 69 criminal offences on your record. There was more than one victim that day. Afterwards, Carrie said, Nobody could ever understand why he got released. I still have nightmares about John. He is just pure evil. And the lead detective in the case said the following, Suffolk police take pride in keeping people safe and serving all of our communities in a fair and respectful way that builds trust and confidence. The street drinking population in Ipswich is small, but its impact can be disproportionately high. Police in Ipswich and street rangers deal with street drinkers on a daily basis. Multi-agency work is going on to reduce antisocial behaviour within this community and to provide advice, guidance and support to those that seek to enhance their quality of life and progress. It is so important that the street drinkers work with us and our partners to solve their problems and bring about sustainable solutions. However, where offences are discovered, those will be dealt with appropriately. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's pretty shocking, isn't it? And pretty upsetting too. I was really ignorant about the subculture of street drinkers, were you? I just personally feel so sorry for anyone suffering with any addiction. It's so easy for people to be judgmental. That makes me really angry. It's not angry, disappointed, I suppose, because I don't get it at all. Anyone suffering from any addiction has my full sympathy. Our real thoughts go out to Rosalind, Des and Alison. Three people doing their best in life, but who suffered with alcoholism to the extent that it destroyed their lives and ultimately played a significant role in their deaths. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group where there's almost 50,000 of us now. And to support the show, please come and join me on Patreon. Not only will it make you a better person, but also you'll have access to all the behind the scenes information. This includes bonus episodes, all the stats, a chance to watch the podcast live, cheap tickets, and everything else you've always wanted and never had. You know it makes sense. So that's all for me for today. So thank you again for taking the time to join me on the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. I'm off to check our rates in the northwest, just thinking about our Christmas party in Rochdale. I can almost smell the steam. Don't know about you. Anyway, on that seedy bombshell, that's it for me for today. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy, despite all the others. (laughs) I know, I fully understand. And most of all, stay classy.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.